I have been called many things in my 42 years on the planet. And there are different things that I care to be called from time to time, depending on the circumstances. Most basically, my name is Nick. That is what most people call me. Though very rarely, if I'm with people who have known me for a very long time, I might hear a, a Nicky come out every once and again. Uh, it always catches me off guard a little bit when I hear that. When I was younger, if I got into trouble, though, Nicky was not the name that people used for me. Depending on the severity of my crime, uh, my mother might call me Nicholas Noel Neves, and the volume with which she shouted that name at the top of her lungs would tell me how bad I would be getting a spanking after she got a hold of me. Uh, for the most part, though, Nick is the name that people call me. But at times, there are reasons that I might request that people use a slightly different version of my name. If I am preaching at another church, for instance, I may introduce myself as Pastor Nick because I'm called by God to serve his church as a pastor. If I introduce myself as such, I'm likely engaged in some specific activity where my title is relevant and, it's, and being called Pastor Nick helps others to understand the part that I intend to play in that particular context. So I mention this because we're at the beginning of a letter, a, a formal written line of communication from one party to another. The biblical figure Paul, who is second only to Luke and the amount of words written in the New Testament record, he is continuing an important long-distance conversation that has been playing out over the course of an extended period of time. If you remember the short chart that I included in the note sheet last week, you might recall that 1 Corinthians 5.9 indicates that Paul had already sent a letter to the church in Corinth that we don't have. So while 1 Corinthians is the first of two letters written to that church that are preserved in the New Testament, it's technically not the first part of that conversation. Paul was one of the founding ministries, ministers that helped to begin the church in Corinth. And after having moved to various other places to start various other churches, because of his great heart for them, he remained connected to the people in that region. 2 Corinthians 12, 14 and 2 Corinthians 13, 1 and 2 reference a third visit that Paul makes to the church in Corinth. One of those visits is mentioned in the book of Acts, but that means that the second visit is not recorded in the Bible at all other than in that brief mention in 2 Corinthians. In that visit, the conversation must have been advanced again, but that's not a piece of the puzzle that God has chosen to make us privy to. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 tells us that Paul sent a letter that was between 1 and 2 Corinthians, written sometime in between that period, a letter that he almost wished he did not send. Because in that letter, he was quite blunt with the people of Corinth about some of the errors that they were making. Paul doesn't spend time writing letters so that he can just engage in chit-chat with people. Uh, he doesn't want to just talk about the weather when he is engaging churches. Usually if he's writing, there is something very significant, something valuable that needs to be addressed. And in the case of the Corinthians, there were sinful behaviors that Paul felt compelled to confront and to correct. So there's a conversation that has been going on here. And we don't have the whole story, but we have the portions that God has determined will help us to know Him better and to learn how to guard ourselves from the kinds of defilement that the Corinthian church was subject to at this time. And in a conversation like this one, we might be tempted to make the mistake of thinking that the greeting to a letter like this, the first few words that 
pick things back up where they were left off last time. So they might be inconsequential. We can just kind of read over them, but quickly skip to the body of the letter where the meat and the potatoes of the conversation lies. But that would be a grave mistake. There's much to be learned if we take our time and consider the way that Paul addresses first himself in the introduction to this letter, and then how he addresses the church that was in Corinth. So if you'll turn with me, if you're not already there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read the first three verses today as we begin our study in this great book. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to guide our, our studies together. And then we'll begin to, to take apart this introduction and see what God might be sharing with us here this morning. Father, in your sovereignty, you know what is lacking in us. And you know that you can provide exactly what we don't currently have. And so I pray that you would do just that through your word. Father, I know that from time to time as I have sat in a service such as this, I might hear words that seem to be specially tailored to my own heart and the struggles that I am going through. And I pray that we would come expecting that kind of interaction, that we would come expecting you to speak to us through these words because these are words that all of us need to hear. I praise you, God, for the new identity that we have in Christ. And I ask that we would not be deceived into thinking that we are something less than you have made us to be. I pray that no matter how loud the voice of the world and the culture speaks out its divergent message, that we would not be tempted to adapt to it, to adjust to that message, to capitulate to the will of man and to leave behind our new definition that you have given to us in Christ. Help us, Lord God, to be mighty in the word so that we might not be led astray or deceived. We love you and we thank you for protecting us in our weakness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Focusing our attention on just the first verse, Paul declares two things. He says, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus. And he says, I am called to this charge by the will of God. Paul doesn't always bother to mention that he is an apostle in the greetings that he sends to his letter, his, in his letters to friends and other churches. If you look at each of Paul's letters and when they were written, a pattern begins to merge. He tends to mention his apostleship when A, he is writing to another leader in the church, such as his letters to Titus or 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Those letters were directed to fellow leaders who were serving as elders in shepherding people of God in different places. Or he will use this title specifically when there's at least some portion of his audience that he's writing to who questions his authority or tries to undermine his sincerity. Um, an example to this would be the church at Galatia. We went through that book um, about a year and a half ago. We started going through that small letter. And you might recall that there was a great conflict in Galatia because the gospel that Paul had preached there when, when that church was founded was now being challenged by an alternative gospel that other people claiming to be authoritative had come in and began to preach. This was a gospel that was radically different than what Paul had preached to them. Instead of trusting alone in the grace that Jesus provides through his death, burial, and resurrection, 
these new preachers, these divergent teachers were saying that you need Jesus. His grace is essential to you, but you must also take unto yourself the yoke of the law. You must become as the Old Testament church or the Old Testament people of God were. You must become circumcised and follow all of Moses' commands as well. And so Paul refers to himself in verse 1 of Galatians as an apostle. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him, Jesus, from the dead. So Paul makes sure very upfront in the book of Galatians that he is talking to that church, that gathering of believers, from an authority that God had given to him. It wasn't his own authority. It wasn't authority he had earned. It was a given authority. And so he will mention this title when there is need for it, when there are, are reasons to believe that some of the people he's addressing might not have great confidence in his leadership or in the position that God had appointed him to. Paul's position is often important to his credibility. And so when it is, it makes sense that he would declare it from the beginning as he does here in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. Paul doesn't just mention the position itself, though. He also mentions here in 1 Corinthians 1 how he came to take on that role. He was not elected to the office. He did not advance in the ranks and climb the ladder of spiritual church authority where he was. He did not aspire at all, in fact, to be an apostle in the Christian church. At the time of his calling, Paul was in the very act of trying to dismantle this very church the very church that he now risked his own life and safety to serve. So the occasion of Paul's station was this. He was called to the station of apostle. He was called to it. It should be very clear to us that God interrupted the life of Paul and commanded him, or commandeered him rather, for service. Paul did not even have a choice in the matter when you look carefully at the way that Paul was brought into this position. There was no invitation Jesus didn't ask Paul if he was up for the task. He commanded. This was not an ask, it was in a tell. Doesn't our God, who created us and puts breath into our lungs, have every right to demand that as his creation, we do something in service to him? There was a famous discourse in chapter 9 of Romans where Jesus describes how God is in many ways like a potter, a creative a creative artist who is forming for himself something of value. And then he describes the people that he has created as his clay, a soft, malleable substance that can be shaped, that can be moved, that can be conformed to the, the working hands of this artist who has something in his mind's eye that he is trying to build and create, something that will express the beautiful thoughts of the creator. What right, in chapter 9 of Romans, what right does the clay have to put restrictions on the potter? The Apostle Paul argues in that portion of Scripture that the one who is making the design has every freedom to make it what he wants it to be. And so is the life of man. We should be willing and glad, in fact, to let the hands of our Lord shape our lives into whatever he has called us to be. Clay is passive, it is malleable, and it becomes more valuable the more that artist puts his input into it. It was the will of God that Paul would serve him in this way, and Paul did not have the power to oppose an almighty God. None of us do. 
So what does Paul do in response? He obeys. This heavy-handed approach by God was not cruel to Paul. By yanking the Apostle Paul out of darkness and thrusting him into light, Jesus spared Paul the eternal wrath of God to which he was headed. It was a loving and at the same time forceful act that saved Paul from hell and brought him into faithful service to our Lord God. I want to point out a couple of characteristics of that calling. This calling that Paul received involves a commission to preach the truth. Acts 9, verses 15 through 16. This is Paul and his conversion story that is recorded in the book of Acts. It says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is God's will for the Apostle Paul. He has commissioned him. He has commissioned him to be a messenger of sorts, to carry the name of Jesus Christ before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. In Acts 26, Paul tells his own story of, of conversion as he stands before a panel of people who have authority. It says, but rise and stand upon your feet. This is what was told to him. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul was commissioned to serve the Lord God. And in doing so, he bore the truth to the places where it needs to go. Paul has specific instructions he has been given that guide his task. He can't do it exactly how he wants to do it. He has to be guided by the one who has commissioned him. But he is not merely writing this letter because he has to do it. The second characteristic of this calling, first he is commissioned to it, but this calling also brings a powerful compulsion in Paul, a compulsion to respond to the commission obediently. I want to bear that out for you in Scripture here today. Paul cannot help but live out the instruction that God has given to him. It becomes non-negotiable to his life. He has to obey the Lord, not just because of the outside calling, but because of an inward conviction that compels him forward in obedience. In 1 Corinthians, later on, we're going to get to chapter 9 in several months. Apostle Paul writes, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. And then notice these next words, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He knows that woe will fall upon him if he does not fulfill this commission that he has been called to. He must go forth and preach. He may have been commandeered for the task, but the task has become so important to who he is that he cannot so much as think about turning away from it. And this is very much so like the prophet Jeremiah that we read about in the Old Testament. If you were to look at his conversion, Jeremiah is called as a child to grow into a prophet. In verses 4 through 10 of Jeremiah 1, you can read it when you get home today. 
God calls Jeremiah forward and tells him that he will bear the words of God for the glory of God and that it will not be an easy task, but that he will provide what Jeremiah needs to complete it. It's interesting here because in Galatians 1.15, Paul also uses similar language. He declares that he had been set apart from his mother's womb to fulfill this commission that God had placed upon his life. Later in Jeremiah's life, after much heartache, after he has borne this commission to the world, after he's been persecuted by his own countrymen for speaking the truth of God to them, he has been put in stocks, he's been laughed at, he has been largely ignored, and yet he is faithfully pressed forward. He considers walking away from this calling. Jeremiah thinks, what is the point of this if I am a messenger and the one who receives my message won't even hear it? If they mock me and turn me away, then why should I even go? What's the point in preaching if no one will receive my message? But almost no sooner do the words wander out of Jeremiah's mouth. No sooner do the thoughts become verbalized that he quickly corrects his own self. He says in Jeremiah 29, If I say I will not mention him, or speak any more in his name. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Jeremiah had been redefined by the Lord God. He had been made into a different man. And so now, not only is that commission external, it is in him, and he must speak it to the world, even if it costs him his freedom or his dignity or his life. And this same calling has been laid upon Paul. Paul cannot help but impact his interactions with the believers in the church, for they themselves have benefited in direct ways from the ministry that God has provided to the Corinthians through this apostle Paul. In fact, when we get to chapter 9, we're going to see an extended address of Paul about his apostleship and why it matters to the conversation. But let me just give you a little sliver of it today. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 2, Paul asks, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. What Paul is alluding to there is the fact that the Corinthian church was not a church until Paul got there. And God used him and others to plant this little kernel of truth in a sea of deceit. So Paul is saying, I am the apostle that brought the very words of life that changed you. Don't I have a place to, to talk to you about what's going on in your life and in your being? Cannot we have a conversation about the things of God? Will you not hear me out? I want you to see how Paul's calling flavors the, nation, the nature of his interaction with these Corinthians. In chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. So what Paul is revealing there too, he's not saying that he displaces God the Father. God the Father is ultimately our Father. But he's saying the work that he did brought spiritual life. He planted seeds that grew into true faith in the hearts of these people by the work of the Holy Spirit. 
And so he identifies them not just as brothers, which would be appropriate, but also as his own children in the church. And he cares so deeply for them, he, he's not content to just raise them up and then boot them out of the house and send them out into the world and say, well, I'm finished with my charge now. I can go on living my life the way I want to live. No, his heart continues to be connected to these people that mean so much to him. As they walk in faith, he rejoices because that is what he has desired. That is what he has eagerly spent time on his knees to see happen. He has petitioned to God that these people would grow up in faith and maturity. And so he calls them to, to see his heart for them, that they are like children that he cares for and loves and wants to see succeed. And I want to point this out. It is not really Paul's style to come and write a letter to a church that he started and say, you know what? I am your apostle, do what I say. He does not play that authority card quickly with people. It is much more his heart to tell the truth of Christ, to tell the words of God to the people that he cares about, and to see them, see, because Christ says these things, I will obey them. A great example of this is the book of Philemon. If you've never read this small book, it's only a single chapter in the New Testament. It's a very personal letter that Paul writes to his friend in the town of Colossae. Now, this friend had several servants, several slaves in his household. One of them, we've talked about slavery recently, about how slavery had some unique characteristics that are different than our nation's slavery that, that we, have, uh, we have had to deal with quite a bit lately. This man in Colossae, his name was, Onesimus, or was Philemon. He had a slave named Onesimus. That slave broke his bond of servanthood and escaped from the household of Philemon and ran away. He didn't want to fulfill his, his bond. But it just so happens that God brought that runaway slave into a place where Paul happened to be preaching. He heard the gospel. His eyes were opened. His heart was pricked. And he saw that he was a sinner in need of salvation. And so this slave, Onesimus, comes to Paul and says, I want to serve you. I'm a Christian now. I want to be, I want to be useful to the church. And as Paul gets to know this man, he realizes that there's a conflict. That this man, Onesimus, has abandoned a place where he should go. And so Paul determines that he's going to send the slave, Onesimus, back to his master. Because legally he should be there with Philemon. And he sends him with a letter of appeal. And in that letter, Paul does not say, because I am an apostle of God, I command you to release Onesimus into the service of the church. But he says, I am counting on you to do what is right, to see Onesimus not as a slave, but as a fellow brother. And we have great faith and confidence that Philemon, when he heard this, was moved in his heart and was willing to send Onesimus back to be useful for Paul as a servant to the gospel instead of a servant uh, in a household. In, in the same way, Paul is not very quick here with the Corinthians to say, because I am an apostle, you need to change what you're doing. Rather, his goal is not to convince people to submit to him, but to the higher authority of the one that Paul himself is submitted to. So Paul's greeting helps us to set the tone for how he intends to interact with the Corinthian brethren. He's doing so gently. He's doing so lovingly, but he is doing so firmly because he sees these individuals as his spiritual children. We also see in this first verse mentioned another name, right? And that is Sosthenes. 
We shouldn't just completely overlook him, although most of our understanding of who he is must be speculation. But there is some evidence that will help us to determine how we should see this man. The word order of the greeting almost certainly excludes Sosthenes from being an apostle. Paul doesn't say Paul and Sosthenes, apostles in Jesus Christ. He notes himself as an apostle, and then he also mentions Sosthenes. So we can pretty much rule him out as being an apostle. Was he a co-author in this book? That is very unlikely as well, because almost throughout the letter, Paul is using first-person singular. He's not talking about we. He's talking about I. Now, when you get to 2 Corinthians, that tone changes because Paul is then bringing wisdom from himself, but also from other brothers who are leaders in the church. Here in 1 Corinthians, this seems to be simply from Paul, not necessarily from Paul and Sosthenes. Is he an amanuensis? That is a weird word that we use to describe somebody in the New Testament who would often do the physical writing on a parchment, somebody who had good handwriting, good penmanship, clear eyes. They would often write a letter out so that they wouldn't ruin any scrolls or waste space. So often someone like Paul would have an amanuensis, a a, a designated writer, write out his script. We think that might be probable here in this case because in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 21, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting, meaning the very last part of the letter, I write it in my own hand. means he didn't probably write the whole letter. He writes just the last portion of it. So this Sosthenes very likely was a writer who helped Paul in the process. But we also don't need to necessarily think that was the case because Sosthenes is very likely a man that the people in in the Corinthian church were very familiar with. And chapter 18 of Acts that we talked about last week, remember that there was a leader in the synagogue who was kicked out of the synagogue because we assume he was allowing the gospel to be preached there. His name was Sosthenes. We can assume that perhaps he was not only kicked out of the synagogue, but he felt compelled to leave the city with Paul as Paul left shortly after that to not be the target of violent reactions from people in the synagogue in Corinth. And so it's safe to assume that he continued on with Paul and is mentioned here because of his close ties with the Corinthian brothers. So Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, called to action by God, is determined to help the church at Corinth to understand that despite the great freedom that has been won for them, they still belong to God. They too, like Paul, are clay in the hands of the potter, who has the right to shape them and form them into an expression of his beautiful creativity. They are not a group of fractured friends who belong to different social groups or cliques. They are not a city of moral free agents who can behave how they want, who can pick and choose whether they want to follow the words of their Redeemer. They are the church of God. They are his possession. And so Paul points to that as he addresses them in this greeting. He says in verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So to the church that is in Corinth, not to the churches that are in Corinth, although there were very likely many house churches gathered in Corinth, Paul uses the singular here on purpose. He is trying to draw the attention of these Corinthian believers to the unity of God's one true church. John 17, verses 22 through 23. 
our Savior says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. This is Jesus uh, praying to the, the Father. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, one, even as we are one. In them, and I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. What does God value in the church? He values unity and oneness. He doesn't want us to be mostly unified. He wants us to be one as he is one with the Father. There is no greater unity than that. That is what he is pushing us towards. The church is what it is because of what Christ has done. Jesus sanctifies sinners. He calls them to be holy, to be saints. He calls them to join together in communion and fellowship under the guidance of one king, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one name upon which they all call, and they are bearing the image of that perfect God as they live out faithful worship to him in their day-to-day lives. This is a redeeming work. It keeps us from destruction, but it is also a reconciling work. God has saved you not just for your benefit. He has saved you to be near to him. He doesn't need you, but you need him, and he knows that. So the work of Christ, when his blood is shed and when his, when his life pours out of him, he is doing that so that the distance, the void that exists between a sinner like us and a holy and perfect God might be perfectly bridged, that we might be near to God again and live in his fellowship, to be companions of a God that we used to be enemies to. This is the reconciling power of God's gospel. Paul was called to be an apostle. The church has a calling too. Do you notice that here in chapter 1, verse 2? We are called to be saints. Called to be saints. And the word for saints here is the exact same word in the Greek that is used to describe something as holy, agios, or in this particular uh, verb, agios. It is the same word that is used when we read of the Holy Spirit. That is the agios. Pneumatos. And it is the same word that is used wherever you read of the, uh, the, the church being holy in the New Testament. Very frequently, Paul describes God's people as saints, as holy ones. 2 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, Romans 1.7, 1, Romans 8.27, Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. On and on again, he describes the church in this way. He uses this word to tell the church who they are now in Christ. Peter also used this word. He described a community who are not formally a people of God, but have been now made a people of God through the reconciling power of the gospel. He says in verse 9 of chapter 2 in 1 Peter, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy agios nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This agios is such a powerful word. But we can't help but see the unavoidable irony in the fact that he uses this term to describe the Corinthians. And if you're not familiar with this letter yet, it'll become more clear as we go along. These Christians are not behaving as if they are saints. These Christians, if you were to watch their behaviors and describe them yourselves, you would not call them agios. Even though they have been sanctified by God, there is serious corruption in them. There is serious divergence from the truth that God has proclaimed for them to follow. We often consider 
sanctification as a means by which we are made more holy by the Holy Spirit. And that is not untrue. But I believe it would really help us also if we begin to think about sanctification more like the way that we think of justification. Sanctification is not just a process. It is also positional. When you are saved, when God calls you out of darkness and into light, He makes you a sanctified person. You are declared righteous. That is justification. But you are made clean by the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, which has expunged your sins and made your record pure before the Lord God. If we are in Christ, we are a holy people. We have been redefined as such. So our unholy behavior... When we allow our hearts and minds to be distracted by the things of this world and to draw away from the truth, our unholy behavior is simply ridiculous because it's not who we really are anymore. We have been redefined by Christ and we have no business acting like what we used to be. It is possible for a person to misunderstand sanctification as a kind of stealth form of works. If you don't see sanctification as a positional thing, that you have been brought into this by the work of Christ to begin with, then you might very well say, I was saved by grace, but if I don't maintain my sanctification, if I don't work for greater and greater holiness, it's often not said but implied by my own effort, then I will forfeit the cross. Then I will no longer be good enough for the salvation that Jesus has given. But friends, this ignores the positional power of sanctification. Instead, making it all a matter of what you, the believer, can or cannot do. So yes, we should think about sanctification as this ongoing process whereby God refines us and takes out of us the things that no longer belong, the things that match the old self but don't match the new self. But we should also recognize that sanctification is ours because of what Christ has done. It's not because of what we do. It's what Christ has won for us. Here in the introduction, Paul is already laying the foundation for a very important correction that he intends to make among these Corinthians. The people of this church are not to see themselves as unique. They are not to see themselves as unique. Now, I know that the word holy, we just said you are to be saints, you are to be holy ones. The word holy, in a sense, means unique. It means set apart for a special purpose. It means different from from the world, but not different from the other brothers and sisters that comprise the one church. Not unique as though they are special believers who are exceptions to the rule of Christ and can live like sinners even though they're saved like saints. Verse 2, you're called to be saints together with all of those who in every place Call upon the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. In other words, look at what ties us together. Look, Corinth, about how your Savior is my Savior, is the Savior of the people in Ephesus, is the Savior of the people in Thessalonica. We have one Savior who binds us together. You can't just be the unique group of believers that is radically different from the rest of the Christians around you. You are part of one church. The Corinthian Christians were beginning to draw their identity not as much from the gospel as they were from the secular culture that they were stationed in. And this was a serious problem because Corinth was progressive and liberal. Their ideas loved to stray from what was claimed to be true in the traditional Christian sense. 
Corinthians enjoyed much freedom and license to do whatever they wanted to do. There were very few laws that restricted their behaviors and their passions. Corinth was competitive and entrepreneurial because it was a place where great money flowed. There was a tendency for people to compete against one another and to want to be better than one another. And we see that play out even here in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. The people who should have been brothers and sisters bound together by the love of Christ were intellectually competing with one another and finding themselves divided amongst different leaders within the church. Their perceived freedom had them diverging from the path that the rest of the church was on. And it was even driving them away from one another. Last week in the pastoral prayer, um, Pastor Paul prayed for us. And he prayed that God would help us to have what he called an orthodox faith. And I don't know how familiar you are with the word orthodox, but it's worth spending some time getting to know this word, church. Many times we think orthodox, we think of people in robes with censers. We think of the Eastern Orthodox Church, or we think of the Russian Orthodox Church, which in many ways is more Roman Catholic than it is Protestant. That's not what we're talking about when we use the word orthodoxy here. Orthodoxy is the essential expression of what all true believers hold to, regardless of when they lived, regardless of where they are in the world or the universe. Orthodoxy is the unity that we have thanks to a common dependence upon God's word. When God's word is foundational to us, when it is the standard and we cling to it, then we draw nearer to each other in an orthodoxy, which is universal church to church. That's why the word Catholic is a, is a tricky word. Because right now we think Catholic, we think of Roman Catholic. But the traditionally historical use of that word, it simply means universal. Simply means universal. It means everybody who is orthodox in their belief, who believes in Christ according to the things that he has revealed to us. It is the active amen of those who are called of God and confess his truth. And it is what we have in common thanks to the saving work that he did on the cross. Do you remember last week we spoke about how diversity is important, how there is benefit to having a church that is diverse in culture, in background, in age, in economic strata? But we also made it very clear last week that diversity, while it is important, is not primary in our focus. It is secondary. It is secondary to more important things. And one of those more important things is orthodoxy, that we would want to have doctrine that says amen with the doctrine of those in the church and the world, that we would want to all come underneath the, the umbrella of God's good word, trusting the things that it teaches us and having our understanding always defined by what Scripture says. The Corinthians have been purchased from the slavery of sin, and they must depend on Christ as every disciple must. But man's heart does not conform easily to the things of, of God. We tend to be drawn away by the allure of being special, of being unique, of being exempt from orthodoxy. And that is why God's church needs the instruction that a guide or a shepherd provided by the Lord can give to them. And that's exactly what God does in sending this letter from the pen of the Apostle Paul. See what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says in verse 7 and 4, Who sees anything different in you? He's talking about the Corinthians. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see the distinction that Paul is making here? 
saying everything that is holy and noble and pure and good, everything that is loving and righteous and praiseworthy, everything that is faithful and will last, everything in you that we can say amen to as a blessing from God, it didn't start in you. It was put there by a holy deposit of God. God made you those things. And so let's rejoice in it, but let's not get twisted in this. Let's realize that we have nothing to boast about in ourselves except for the fact that Christ has put something into us that is boastworthy. So let us boast in our Savior. Let us boast in Him. And let us all in humility find a common unity that we have all been changed. Why? Because of the love of God displayed through the Son, through His resurrection, through His suffering, the Lord Jesus Christ has made us what we are. How can we then stand before God as proud and pretend as if we are something better than our brothers and sisters in a different place or in a different time? We live in a world where so many people want to be stars. They want to be special. Not in the way that the Bible describes holiness, set apart from others because you're set apart for God. No, special even from believers. Paul intends to expose that attitude for the divisive pride that exists in each of us. And when he says, what do you have that you did not receive? He's exposing the flaws in their thinking. It was, it was a wake-up call that they desperately needed. The identity of the Corinthian believers is one with the universal church. And as Paul will describe later in the letter, in chapter 12, he says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We're going to talk when we get there about how beautiful the diversity of the church is, but how all that diversity works under the one head of Jesus Christ who directs the body. And without the head, the body is a dead corpse. It is nothing but rotting mess. But with Christ, each individual part, no matter how different it seems, is working towards the goal of one will, the will of Jesus, the head of the church. Just as Paul was a rebel until God commandeered him and took possession of his life, so too we are enemies to Jesus Christ apart from this amazing grace. But if you are a Christian today, you have been granted faith. And the new life that we have in Christ began with him laying down his life for ours. Paul's position as apostle and our position as saints are both predicated on the work that Jesus did to make those things even possible. In the church today, think about this. People are very quick to express, Jesus is my Savior. They are happy to declare, God is my Lord. But how quick are we to say things like, I belong to Jesus? I am a servant to Jesus Christ. I am his bond slave. I have been bought at a price. I am here for whatever God wants me to, to be. How quick are we to express things like that? Don't our hearts more naturally tend towards saying that, that Jesus is mine and that I, I, I am now possessor of an inheritance? We like to talk about the promises that he has made, but do we think about ourselves as enough as being the clay in the hands of the potter? 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Don't think about yourself selfishly as if, what can I get for myself in this life? But think about how you might serve the one who has made you alive and spared you from the, the eternal flames of hell. Paul so very often in his letters describes himself as a slave to God. He knows he is more than that. He knows that he is also a son. He has been granted inheritance in God's kingdom. 
but that does not cause him to shed his reverence of the Father who adopted him. He will serve his king. He will yield to the potter. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world. Again, think of the language here. Conformed, shaped, made into something that the world would have you be, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, this is so critical today. How hard the world is pressing on your heart right now. How much the world wants to make you into something that doesn't match what God wants for you. If we are not careful, if we are not alert and awake, church, in a a spiritual way, not in some uh, virtue signaling way, if we are not awake, then the the world is going to try to press us into the form of godlessness that seeks to glorify the individual heart rather than glorifying Christ as the only redeemer. This is so relevant to our place in life right now. All believers have become a people for God's own possession. If we are believers, we are owned by him. The blessing of belonging to Jesus is tremendous to us. Any perceived loss of liberty we might have as we walk away from a life that used to seem free, but was really jail, that was really slavery, any perceived loss of that kind of liberty counts for nothing in light of the tremendous gains we have in knowing God and being near to him. I mentioned earlier that the Apostle Paul doesn't like to use his position as, as a, like a, a, a leverage over the people. He doesn't like to, to use the Apostle card against them. God, too, desires his people to worship him in spirit and in truth, not by intimidation, but by love. But friends, do not be deceived. God is not going to subjugate justice to preserve our prejudices, our, our, our preferences. He will not allow sin to persist and simply wait around forever for you to get your will in line with His. If you are truly changed of God, He has declared you righteous, He has made you holy, and He will continue to work holiness in your life until the end. So if holiness is... It's got a bad flavor to you. If holiness is undesirable, if you have no desire to be clean of the things of this world, then stop and look in the mirror and ask yourself, who is Christ? And do I belong to him? Or have I tried to conscript him into service in my life, but failed to give him any kind of lordship and authority over me? He is God, and God is a judge, a judge of justice and righteousness. He reigns on high, and his will will be done. If you are not trusting in the Lord today, I beg you, friend, be humble today. See the the pervasive power of the sin that is within you. Recognize your weakness to overcome it, that you can't defeat your sin. And see that God knows that and in love has sent a way for you to be redeemed by giving Jesus Christ, by putting him into this world so that he might live a perfect life that fulfilled the law that was not deserving of death. God has made a way where there was no way before. God has sent a son who offered his life as a perfect sacrifice, like the one lamb that could truly wash away the sins of the wicked people that we are. And turn to him today. If you have not put your faith and hope in him, recognize that you cannot negotiate with the Lord God about salvation. You cannot say, God, I'll give you this portion of my heart, but I'm going to keep this freedom of mine for myself. He is your king or he is nothing to you. And eventually he will be your judge. Pray that you will turn your hearts to Christ and experience the joy of being a part of this universal church, of being a portion 
of this church that is orthodox and called together under the work of the, the, the word to glorify God in the ways that he has commanded. Because of our nature, because we are so prone to wander, we need leadership. And God intends to use Paul the apostle to lead this wayward church to a greater sense of love for the commands of Christ and along with that a greater orthodoxy that unites them with the people of God throughout time and throughout the world. And there's a positive consequence that can flow from that kind of unity. We don't want to overlook that. The third verse here in chapter 1 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace are experienced best when we know who we belong to and to what extent. And we act as though we believe it. How much division and strife comes to us when we treat God without reverence, when we act as though God deserves no fear from us, How divisive is that to the church? The world we live in works against this single-minded unity. The loving confrontation of God's apostle will help the Corinthian church to not become defiled by the culture that has no fear for God. In order to protect the relationship of peace that exists between God and his church and to help foster that grace which has made them what they are, there are some specific areas of holiness that Paul is going to hit head on in this letter. And so I'm going to break it down for you just uh, verbally right now. Next week, I'm going to include this in your note sheet so you have kind of a roadmap going forward. In 1 Corinthians, we're going to break down chapters 1 through 4 as Paul teaching the church how to be undefiled in wisdom and in unity. In wisdom and unity. And then in chapters 5 through 7, he teaches the church how to be undefiled in purity and in practice, in the way that we behave, in the way that we practice our faith. In in chapters 8 through 10, He's going to talk about how we can be undefiled in liberty and in our consideration for others. He's going to teach us how to be free in Christ and how that freedom should not cause us to be ignorant of each other's hurts and hardships, but how we should care for one another through each other's hurts and hardships. And then in chapters 11 through 13, he will teach us how to be undefiled in worship and in love. Finally, in verse 15, he will give us some deep doctrinal points. He's going to teach us about the gospel and about the power of the resurrection. And then chapter 16 will wrap up this discourse and help the church to see that he, carely, he truly cares for them, and that is why he's writing. They are together in the mission of the gospel, and that mission will continue until the return of our Lord. So be praying that by his word, God will continue to shape his church into vessels for his honor, not just the Corinthian church, but First Family Church in 2020 and beyond. So let's take a moment and, and close with a word of prayer. God, we thank you for the ways that you... You bolster our hearts by taking away every pride that would divide us from you, Lord God. I pray that humility would be something that we pray for every day. God, that you would help us to rejoice in our station, which seems lowly because it is different than yours, God, but to be called your sons and daughters and to bear your image is a high calling, God. Let us not forget that. We don't have to be unique and different from each other. We don't have to be scratching and clawing and trying to become better than the people around us, Lord God. Let us just be thankful that you have made us better than we were when we were dead in our sin and an enemy to the cross. Lord, I pray that you would continue to redeem and, Father, you would use weak vessels like us to do exactly that, that you would send missionaries out in the field just as you sent Paul out to be a planter of churches and a powerful apostle. God, send us out to preach the gospel to our loved ones and our neighbors, the people around us, God. We don't want to look aside and and think that somebody else will just someday do this. Let us be the voice of your church. I praise you, God, for all that you are teaching us. And may we receive these words with humility. May we continue to meditate on them throughout the week. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.